Welcome to the Camera Shake podcast with me, Kirsten Nuts, and Nick Kirby, the podcast where we talk about photography, videography, making photos, making videos, and anything that's got anything to do with any of that. Today, we have another special guest, Chris Knight, who's going to be with us in a second. But before we get to that, there's a couple of other things we have to discuss. So, episode 63. It's been a busy week, man. Uh, has it? Yeah, it's been very busy. I've not really got off the sofa. I don't... Really? Well, no, that's not true. It's been it's been busy because we've done um we've done a couple of shoots. One was a test shoot. Um, yes. For a shoot that actually happened yesterday, which would have been like a week ago if you're watching this on a Thursday, clearly. Um, that was interesting. Well, I wasn't there for the actual shoot on this occasion. Right. But oh, I yeah. was there for the test shoot. Yeah. And the test shoot was damn interesting. Yeah. It was, you know, what was actually really good or what felt really good was um, to be, you know, to, to actually shoot another human being in the studio type of setting. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, mm. we haven't mm -hmm. done that many of those since COVID, really. No, you know, no, no, no. That's just, I don't know. It just feels good. It feels and like it, things are coming back. It felt good for to do that as a test shoot, uh, test shoot scenario, but I can only imagine what it was like for the actual shoot and for the particular person it was with as well, which yeah, no names. Exactly. So that's going to be something, we're going to reveal the whole nature of this project um, in, well, the, well, probably at some point next month, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so that was interesting. So, but what we did was um, we, we did um, a test shoot that would just basically enable us to, to like, you know, to dial in some lighting and just experiment with mm -hmm. some of this because, because the nature of that shoot, uh, there were a little, a few complications that I could see that I wanted to just tackle before, um, you know, before the subject was in the studio. Yeah. As yeah. it were, just, you know, just a time saver and um, stuff like that. So. Yeah. And it's, it, it's normal to do that as well, right? I, 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 I I don't always think people believe that things like that should happen or it's, you know, it's not professional to have to do test shoot. It bloody is. <laughs> if you don't do it, it's not professional. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is just you something know? I think that's, that's probably not so commonly known is the fact that, you know, I mean, test shoots happen all the time. Yeah. Like literally all the time. You know, and okay, it's one thing if it's a setup that you do all the time. You don't necessarily need to well, no. do a test shoot for everything like that, or it's a particular headshot session. Or, or although, you know, style. even like, you know, with COVID and everything, like coming back to just doing ordinary headshots, you know, even that felt a little bit rusty. Yeah, absolutely. You know, after like 10 months of not doing any or something. So why not blow away the cobwebs or mm. whatever it is that you'll want to try out that's, oh, we've not done it. I've not done it quite like that before. And before I actually have an actual client in, Let's try out on someone. Yeah, I mean, even you know, even just testing the uh, the equipment. In fact, I mean, that was there was one scenario during the test shoot or just before the test shoot where uh, stuff wasn't happening because some firmware or another ha hadn't been updated. You know, so immediately perfect, example. yeah, perfect example. Yeah, so that would have been you know that would have cost like forty minutes or something you yeah. know of time had that happened on shooting day. So yeah, again, those are the kind of you know the, the typical the typical scenario for that yeah. kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was good. But you know what I loved about this particular shoot was that there were props involved. And as you well know, I love a good prop. You do love a good propping, a don't good you? Prop. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was awesome. I liked it. We talked about, you know, we're talking like fake snow, 
um, stuff like that. Glue guns. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So let's talk about the uh, test bit because that's the part that I know, and then we'll move on to the, okay. the how the actual shoot went because I I still don't know. Mm. I, I have seen part of the result from it. Yeah, uh, which mm. right, let's not get into that just yet. So for the test shoot, so okay, well, why don't you explain first of all why why you felt you on this occasion needed to do a test shoot? What why it made sense? To okay, do so that. the initial task in this was to basically recreate. Um, a particular film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it's the only way that could be done was uh, as a composite, which may or may not be somewhat different from the original shot. Um, but what that meant was, you know, it, it meant that we had to have a look at, first of all, we had to analyze the original photo into mm-hmm. lighting and, um, and all that kind of jazz. And, you know, and so, and then it was a matter of actually just trying that out, testing things out. Um, making sure we're using the right modifiers and you know had things dialed in because because really you know when the when the subject arrives on set that's the last thing you want to do is you, there's always mm. to some degree you have to try things out and of test course things, but, but you know you want to have a really really good idea of what it is yeah I mean basically you have to have a game plan is yeah. I think is you know what it boils down to and so in this particular case. Because there wasn't there wasn't um, an infinite amount of time for the actual shoot either, so it wasn't like you know okay well you know we have the actual model yeah. there or the actual subject there and we've got all day to shoot. It wasn't quite like that. It was you know it was limited time. So um, so the more headway we could make before the actual shooting day, you know, the better. Yeah, absolutely, and I think we tried, mm-hmm. I guess, effectively three different modifiers for the key light on on this occasion. Yeah. Um, we tried a reflector, beauty dish, and a beauty dish with um a grid on. Yeah, yeah, right. true. Yeah, you know, um, and that grid is, it may as well be a totally different thing. Gritty. It's the, <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. God, it's yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, eighty-five stops of light taken. Yeah. Away. Yeah, that's quite a thing, but you know, um, but the I think one one of the uh, problems with this particular shoot was that um or this this part of the shoot was that you know um it's a matter of shooting for extraction meaning that you know you're going to replace the background and so there's certain things that you can do um to make your life easier in post mm-hmm. you know that's that's really the point so you know trying and unfortunately in this case as we all know that it's notoriously difficult to cut out hair unfortunately the the whole hat was fur yeah so yeah you know so going into it i already knew like okay cool we're gonna have to come up with a way to make that a little bit easier you know so that it's um, not like their flyaways and hair that you can you can easily get rid of these are quote unquote flyaways that you want to keep as yeah, well. because it, I mean, know, we it's can, part of the part of the look yeah we can probably say i mean it's like an arctic explorer type uh mm-hmm. you know theme if you want and so you know that um that that yeah that's was going to be that was always yeah. going to be tricky to do in post uh, to an extent you know um to do it well basically yeah. and so that the things you can do um during the shoot although having said that of course what happens in a test shoot and what then actually goes down on the actual shoot that may very well be different things depending on what you learn from the test shoot mm-hmm. um and 
what the situation actually is yeah. in children because things happen, you know, whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the test shoot went really well. There was there were a number of takeaways um, there that definitely made uh, the following day uh, easier. I think we certainly worked out these are the things to look for and to be aware of should that scenario arise, you know. So here's, the thing I think is that, that people often think that what you do in a test shoot is that you figure out what works. Mm-hmm. When in reality, you actually, it's more like you're figuring out what doesn't work. <laughs> that's right. You know, and that's, that's, that's right. That's a, that's a really important point. Um, you know, because it may be that you don't have the right tool mm-hmm. for the job, or it may be that you figure out that if you, when you do use the right tool, you might actually not quite like the look of it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's these sort of decisions that you make. So for instance, um, just as an example, you know, um, in the original image, the one that we were trying to you know, imitate in a way, the light was very hard in that. And I knew that, you know, although we were kind of replicating that, I, I knew that that may, on, on Tune Day, may not necessarily be the right way to light our actual subject out for a number of reasons. And the things like, you know, age, uh, face shape, blah, blah, and so on. Um, and so I kind of thought, you know, we're going to have to come away from from the, the light being like super contrasty and super hard. But we also, we can't go all the way to it being a softbox. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to have to find that middle ground th- that gives us the right amount of contrast without being too hard and being too soft. Yeah. You know, I think it was, it was all about that. And that's, you know, yeah. so that was, um, those are things. So it was a matter of eliminating a number of different things. And, and I think, I think that is a, the, what you said a second ago about the, the photo that we, you know, we're trying to recreate, and it wasn't necessarily a direct 100% intent recreation. No. It was to get, this is the feel, this is the type of look that we want to go for. Um, the the subject that was in that particular photo was, you know, old, older, right? You know? Yeah. And actually that harder, harder light work lends itself to perhaps you know, that kind of skin type, you know, an older skin type. Mm. Whereas who you were shooting is nowhere near that, that particular age. And actually what you, you know, what you just described that maybe it doesn't need to be quite as hard for, um, for that particular model makes so much sense. And it's not often thought about necessarily. In yeah, that no, way. And of course, you know, the thing is you, because you're, you're dealing with, um, it really, I mean, you know, if you, if you take Take the model and the props, for example. You know what you're working with are approximations of the mm. original shot. Mm-hmm. So that's you know because they weren't exactly the same; they were slightly different. And the hood, in particular, was different in the sense that um, it was quite different, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, so there were certain differences that that would just make it harder to get light into the face, blah blah. blah. Mm. Um, and so, really, you're just working with an approximation, anyway. So then, when it comes to the other element in the in the shot, like for example, the lighting, you know. You, already you're looking at an approximation of the original shot. So, you know, it basically that means like lighting direction, well, it's relatively easy. Um, you know, the hardness of the light, that's where you've got a little bit of wiggle room. 
and so on and so forth. You know, so you can kind of go through all these different elements and go like, mm. okay, what, where does this work? And you can think of it as a, like on a scale of one to 10 or zero to 10 or something, you know, and then you can always kind of go, okay, well, where on a scale does that, does that fall? And, you know, what works with this particular yeah. you know, model or subject? I mean, in the same way that you would, you know, if you're talking about like something like, I don't know, corporate headshots, for example, yeah. you know, typically you would light men and women differently. For, I mean, for that, for that reason, Tip because, yeah, typically, and you know, uh, unless somebody has a particular set of facial features or something, but, um, but because you know, in principle that that usually works, Yep. you know, and so, um, yes, this, this shoot wasn't vastly different mm. that. you know, we knew we wanted to have some dramatic lighting in it. Um, I also knew that I wanted to try a different thing. So the setup that we're describing was really just one of a number of different setups. Um, and I had a really good idea for some other kind of much darker shots, um, which turned out really, really cool. Mm. I think it were a lot more, a lot more dramatic. Um, so, you know, overall, I'm really quite, I'm really happy with the end result, although I haven't actually at this point um, finished the, the post-production all of the photoshots we said. But I think what's in interesting about the, um, the composite shot, the, 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 the shot that you took that you're going to cut out and put uh, yeah. another background on is you can liken that, um, a lot to green screen video. Yeah, true. Right. Mm. And if you, if you watch film and you see that moment where, oh, that's probably, you know, CGI or just go back a little bit further you'll see videos, uh, films where what, what the subject, the, the actor in the film looks, and it's usually that they look slightly brighter than they probably should for that scene. Mm. That's because it's been done on a green screen and they weren't lit correctly. Yeah. They weren't 100% right and it's, they've just, they almost look washed out compared to the background. It's usually mm. how I... I, I perceive it when when i see a bad green screen and it's not that it's bad it's just that it could have been done a bit better and over the years obviously that's got better and better and better but so my point is is that doing a composite shot like you're you've you, uh, you've just done where you're shooting someone on a background mm. and cutting them out and putting them on a different background you need to be really, really careful and very particular about the lighting for that shot so that you know it's going to blend into your final shot, yeah. which is, you know, I mean, basically this, this shot was done on a darker background, well, right? But yes. it's going to end up with a light, very light background. Oh, okay. No, so this, you know, this is a different, yeah, so this was a different, that was a different setup. So basically the, the one that I did for extraction was on a white background. Because I know oh, you did go ahead and do that yeah, on the white background. Yeah. So because I okay. knew that the um, um, the background that I'm actually going to use is going to be much brighter because it's it's sort of an Arctic theme, so it's you know it's going to be bright. Um, so yeah, so the darker shot was really just a, a different thing, a different mm -hmm. idea that I had for that. You know, which which really sort of takes us into the realms of kind of dramatic portraiture, and you know, when it comes to dramatic portraiture, I don't know anybody better to talk to than to New York City-based portrait photographer, educator, author, and the unrivaled master of dramatic lighting. Give it up for Mr. Chris Knight. 
Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Hey, man. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Thank you for having me. That's quite an introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true, actually. It's all Absolutely. true because... um. Because uh, the, the first time I, I came across it was actually uh, when I was watching a creative life class mm. um, about low-key uh, portraiture. Yeah. Cool. That, that, was, that was a good bit ago. Um, that was, um, I'm glad you, you know, appreciated that and still oh, sticking yeah. on. So. <laughs> Absolutely. It's actually, I mean, to be honest, you know, it, you know um, it, it's made a lot of, uh, it actually, it's made a major difference to the way that I shoot portraits and the way, you know, the way I um, see light and the way I learned to work with light. So, you know, thank you very much oh, for that. You. No, thank you. That's very, very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those funny things, you know, through, I mean, throughout this podcast I and mean, over the last year or something, you know, it's interesting to speak to people who have actually had the major impact on, you know, on, on my personal growth, I guess, as a, as a photographer. Mm. And, and probably the same thing can be said for you, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's been an unusual year, let's say that. <laughs> well, yeah. How's it been for you? I mean, I know it's, it's, it's excruciatingly hot where you are right now. It is very, very warm. We've got a little bit of a heat wave uh, at the moment, but, but it's, uh, you know, I think, I think the world uh, over, over around here, at least, is starting to regain some sense of normalcy. Um, work, work seems to have kind of come back. Uh, I always, I kind, of, I kind of said like I, I felt like there were tons of people just jonesing to do projects and do work because yeah. they've been, they've had personal stuff that they worked on for, you know, months and months over quarantine, and then now they've got the ability to actually get out into the world and create and implement, and they're just, I think, going nuts with, um, with kind of how active and proactive they are and, and wanting to be with with getting the stuff out into the world and it's, it's kind of been really really nice um i have have had a couple of of commercial gigs this year already um one of them was a full-on a full-on big big production with you know 20 30 people and um it's been it's been great to be able to kind of get back to to that world a little bit yeah did you focus on any personal projects while um, well, over the last, well, I guess, 18 months it's been now, isn't it? Um, so, sort of, sort of. Um, I, I, I definitely have been uh, screwing around with some things. Nothing that mm -hmm. actually ended up as anything. It was more of just kind of experimenting around with different uh, processes and, and uh, trying to kind of figure out some experimental uh technical things uh there was there was one thing in particular that i i think it probably took me the better part of two or three months to to kind of figure out and to make work and uh it was a cool thing to kind of to kind of get that to come together what's uh what what was that uh, i'm it, it fascinates yeah, no, no. me to understand that yeah, what someone like yourself would be experimenting on. <laughs> I, I'm a, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's masochistic, but I'm, I'm a glutton for, I like processes that make my life much harder. Whereas I think most people look into <laughs> uh, camera processes that, that, 
that make their lives easier. I tip, I, I, I usually like for, for personal work, I'm trying to make it as hard on myself as I possibly can for whatever reason. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I think my next thing is like, I really want to learn wet plate, which is just, you know, if you've ever seen it done or, or, or know anything about it, mm-hmm. it is just incredibly difficult. Uh, I mean, relatively difficult to, to kind of what we're used to way to produce an image. And I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by it. And I've got a friend of mine who does it and did, she did like this really amazing project. Um, she's she's this very kind of quirky photographer. Uh, her name is Andriana Seymour. She's somebody I teach with, and uh, she's I mean she does all these kinds of really quirky, unusual stories, like whether it's female roller derby athletes. But she did this whole series on wet plate with like nudists and like old mm-hmm. nudists as like portraits of them, and it's really weird and funny and interesting and so i always kind of that's like i think my next thing that i want to try to figure out uh but for me i shoot on um a fuji medium format system this is genuinely relevant to 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 the task uh that i was trying to kind of figure out i i was looking for a way to mount an anamorphic lens to it mm-hmm. and not make it cost twenty thousand dollars right so, so with, with the anamorphic lenses that exist, they're incredibly expensive. Um, if you can rent one, at best you're getting it into something called a PL mount, which is an RE mount, um, which is used for cinema cameras. And uh, they do a PL to Fuji adapter. It's like a $1,000 adapter, and I just wasn't interested in that. Uh, plus, I wouldn't ever be able to own a lens because they're all, you know, $20,000, $30,000. And so... Uh, I've seen people adapt anamorphic projector lenses to their cameras, which is a thing that kind of hobbyist and, and even kind of uh, mid-level cinematographers I've seen do. They take this lens, they find this, they kind of Frankenstein it to another lens with all these different clamps and everything else, and they they put it on their camera, and it gives you that weird uh, squeeze, right? It gives mm-hmm. the 2x squeeze. So, so. Um, I was on a quest to try to put it on my camera and to put it onto a medium format system is exponentially harder, the bigger the sensor size you have. So it works really well if you're looking at like a micro four thirds or even a crop to a degree. But once you start getting into a full frame and above, it's really, really difficult to kind of adapt and make work just because of you're shooting through so many different optics that it creates really kind of ridiculous bear, like a barrel vignette around, around the lens. And so I kind of set out to um, create, I wanted to create a still camera that operated like a movie camera that gave me like incredibly high resolving power and resolution so that I could create stuff that felt like stills from movies and actually use the language of an anamorphic system. Because what you get to kind of be overly technically nerdy about this with with anamorphic is you get the uh, focal length of the lens you mount it to. And on a medium format, you have to be in somewhere around like 120, 130 millimeter-ish range. Whereas like a full frame, you're around 70. With a crop, you're around 50. Um, And so you have to kind of start with this almost telephoto lens. And then the anamorphic goes on top of it and crams twice the width into the frame. 
right? So what you end up with is you get the compression of the original lens. So you're getting fundamentally a lens that looks like it's shot on a 130 millimeter lens, 135, right? Mm -hmm. Really great compression. Everything looks really up close and you get a nice separation mm -hmm. from the background, but you get the field of view of half of that. So you're getting a 135 millimeter lens at a 60 to 70 millimeter field of view. So when you're using wider angle lenses and stuff, if you can work it onto your camera, you may be like getting a 35 mil field of view right. on a 75 compression. So you right. don't get that crazy weird distortion of wide angle, but you also get a wide angle. The challenge is, is you have to focus either two mm. different lens elements at the same time or add yeah. a second a secondary diopter to the end of it, which gets mm. crazy expensive. And it, then you have to put it on rails and put a follow focus on it. And it just, it becomes a massively huge system to photograph with. It's incredibly complicated to use. <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? See, That's uh, you know, a stunning uh, way to go about it. Though. And the funny thing about it. You want to see is... it? I have, I have it right over here. Really? Oh, sure. Yeah, please. <laughs> so this is what it became. Oh, wow. Right? Let me actually move it over here. So that's what it became. Wow. Yeah. So wow. this is the GFX 100, right? Yeah. That's the GFX 100. Then I, I, I ended up trying to use a Fuji adapter, a Fuji lens on. I couldn't quite get a sharp enough image. So I ended up adapting as an, as an old Pentax uh, 135 that I had lying around, which is here with an adapter for that. So I'm already to here. Keep in mind, this is a medium format size camera. It's not a small camera to begin with. So then it goes to here. Then you adapt it. This is an anamorphic here. Mm. Then it gets the diopter here, which is the focusing diopter, because I didn't want to have to focus two lenses at the same time. Yeah. Then I put a matte box on it with a black pro, um, uh, black magic on the inside to kind of soften the optics a little bit and mm. make it feel a little bit more filmy. And then, of course, you have to run... Uh, a de-squeezer screen onto it yeah. so you can actually see what you're looking at live. Mm -hmm. and so what I have to do is I, I use a remote, I punch in on it, I use the follow focus to zoom in, and then I push the button to, to fire it. Awesome. The challenge <clears throat> I have found uh, has been to, um, to tether with it. And so I actually kind of had to figure out a because you capture one and, and Lightroom don't let you uh, use a 2x pixel ratio, an anamorphic pixel ratio natively. You have to bring mm. it into Photoshop for that, which sucks if you're tethering in studio. Right. Uh, so what I ended up doing, of uh, you can run it to a much bigger sumo if you have it, like the big mm. the big external screens, or uh, with these the little the little <laughs> the little guy. I actually. It's got an HDMI in on it. What I did mm. for it, just as a trial run, is I ran it as a secondary monitor onto, mm -hmm. onto my computer. And then, so what you could do with the Sumo, obviously, which is much bigger. You run it as a secondary monitor, set that to the de-squeeze, and then set your preview window mm -hmm. and capture one to the second monitor, and it'll de-squeeze it live for you. It was a whole like Rube Goldbergian process. Mm. Um, it, took me, it took me a couple months to figure out. 
I'm he's still processing. But I get fascinated by like that kind of weird, weird stuff. That's it. I mean, I take it you're not going to exactly go out and shoot some street with that. Oh, you absolutely can. Because <laughs> that would you be absolutely can. I, I built it to go on a shoulder rig, and then you 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 basically run the follow focus, and then you right. you do this. Right. Um, it's awkward as hell to do it, yeah. and it's not quick to use. Mm. Um, it's really not quick. But I've taken it outside, like I've taken it around the house outside and stuff. It totally right. works. It's just awkward. It's big. Cool. I'd, cool I'd love that, to get a shot of you using that outside. That would just be immense. It's cool. Yeah. It's, it's heavy. It's heavy and it's big. It, it's probably close to two feet long. Hmm. Like all, all, all things attached. It's quite a couple of feet long. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. That's, that's what, what I've been like. doing. The last, the last couple of months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's quite a that's quite a COVID lockdown project. Eh? Damn straight, isn't oh. it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why didn't we do something like that? It's amazing. Well, we started a podcast. I mean, <laughs> all right, fine, <laughs> yeah. fine, fine. Yeah, I mean that's 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 fair. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah, we're now like sixty-three episodes in, so you know we're still well, going. Busy. Although you know, as a measure of how long ago this whole thing started, that's yeah, you know, that scary. is insane. Is, that is, is it, are you doing one one a week? Is that kind of way how you yeah. doing? Yeah, so we literally yeah we started at the beginning of of the first lockdown over here in the UK, mm. and so you know, so you hit the I mean, you're originally from Florida, as I've learned. I, I grew up in Florida, is what I like to say. I don't like yeah, to say I'm from right. Florida. Florida has a bad rap, right? No offense to people in Florida who are listening there, but you know, like if you yeah. live there, you know, it's. But so what, what I'm saying is, like, you should be used to the heat, though. Okay, so so Florida is a very different thing. Florida, like many many places that have mm. uh, very hot climates, they have acclimated to that in a way that that that's that's normal. Like in Florida, yeah. you don't spend all day every day outside. Mm. You're in your house in a centrally AC place, and then you get in your car, which is AC, and you go to the store, which is AC. Like everything's temperature controlled. Whereas like here in New York, for example, like the bodegas or the restaurants, a lot of them are used to like half outside seating. So you're sitting outside just sweating into your meal. <laughs> uh, or you go into the grocery, you, know, you have to walk to the grocery store where it's hot and it's just, you know, nobody really kind of plans for it in a way that's uh, as conducive to you know the, the southern the southern people who who have who have that kind of under control to their credit when did you shift from florida to new york uh i have been in new york for about 10 years about 10 was was that a work related reason that you decided to go there or just for other personal reasons uh so i was working in uh the miami market for a few years that was where i assisted that was kind of the first big city that i moved to from the town that i I kind of grew up in and I got an opportunity for a job. It was a startup up here that a friend of mine was, was working for and, and brought me on to kind of head their creative division, which was very, very all encompassing. And uh, I worked for that job for about a year. And as a startup, it didn't, didn't survive. And when it kind of went, under i went back like i was still doing photo stuff for the company but it wasn't my primary focus 
And then I went back to it being my primary focus uh, afterward. Okay. I kind of go, oh, well, you know, let's let's try this again. And I basically started over. Hmm. Started over in New York, which is a, it's a tough place to, to start over, yeah, to be yeah. honest. It's quite a saturated market. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 full of incredibly talented people who yeah. who are always trying to. It's they're incredibly talented and they're incredibly motivated. Like they're hustlers, and you know, I think that's kind of a big part of of what you have to be in in those big cities to to really make it happen it's it's tough yeah yeah. have you found that you've needed to certainly when you you know obviously when you you started over and you um you know up in new york did you find that you needed to up your game with regards to that hustle or did you find that your work actually spoke for itself so for me uh, i came from the miami market my work was incredibly light bright commercial smiley laughy there's mm. hardly any of that that still exists anywhere in my portfolio i think i'm maybe like one or two limited but but I mostly no like none of that really kind of exists anymore um it didn't really mean anything up in this market i, I think people were less concerned about your ability to shoot a catalog and more concerned with what kind of an image you would like to take you know mm. What does the image do? What are you trying to do with your photography that's different from a zillion other people, you know? And it's just, it's a different world to operate in. Whereas if you have a portrait studio in XYZ town, you know, you you likely have a, a body of work that lends itself to uh, the kind of clientele that you're obviously getting hired to do. And, and a lot of times those kinds of same people have to dip their hands into a lot of different uh, bowls to, 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 to fulfill those needs. Whereas in a much bigger city, specialization is much more the focus. And so it becomes, all right, well, what's your genre? What do you do well? Right. It's like, if you're a doctor, somebody explained this to me a long time ago, if you're a doctor and you're an amazing uh, brain surgeon, podiatrist, uh, plastic surgeon, whatever, like all of these things. And you're amazing at all of them. And then you have this one guy over here who only does brain surgery and he's just as good. Same level of skill set. Most people, when they need brain surgery, are going to go to the person who that's all they do. Yeah. You know? And so for me, it forced me to take inventory and figure out what kind of work. I wanted to make part of this had to do with, you know, I was still shooting casually when I had the job. Um, and I was able to just create work that was for me. I liked, and you know, it's started to get a little darker and moodier and stuff. And that was the stuff that, that, that appealed to me visually, aesthetically, emotionally. Uh, and so I kind of started experimenting around and playing a bit with that in that time. And uh, I was actually really fortunate. Um, shortly after I got a gig uh, as an adjunct 
teacher at a school, which I now teach at pretty regularly, pretty full time, I was teaching Photoshop for him. And I, I eventually parlayed into some other other programs that I teach for them as well. Uh, but I was really fortunate in that the teaching was able to keep me afloat and let like I, I my one of my favorite things about teaching outside of, you know, obviously the rewarding, the giving back thing, you know, all that all that stuff, which is which is great and why people who teach teach, but it also uh, afforded me the opportunity to say no to shitty jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you, and this is why I, I, I do not bemoan the idea of people doing photography as a secondary thing or as, as something you're passionate about and that you love because you get to create work that you, that you want to create. And if, if there's a job that seems awful to you, you can just go, nah, mm-hmm. you know, sure. and I have gotten better in my life about being able to look at certain jobs and go, I feel like you're going to be a hassle. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, <laughs> hey, okay. That's that's the really valuable, I think, thing for for any of us to to kind of keep in mind is if you're going to get great images, sometimes you're willing for to do it for a little bit less money, but maybe the hassle is going to be there. You know, it's like that balance of like the cheap, fast, and good. Like I have another one where it's it's like quality of work, money, and. Um, difficulty of the client or difficulty of the, the situation. And you, you need to kind of hit on two of those. Usually mm. not necessarily, you don't necessarily always need to have the third. Uh, but you know, someone once told me like, if there's a job you really don't want to do double your price and you'll enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and if it's really important about you doing the work, you're just at least yeah. going to make some money to do it. You know? Well, actually, in fact, I mean, we, we <laughs> talked about this in, in last week's episode because it, you know, the reality, of course, throughout COVID over here, you know, throughout the lockdown was that as a, you know, as somebody who shoots people predominantly, it's really, you know, you really, uh, in a sense, you're stuck because you can't actually get close to any people. And so, you know, it's, yes. uh, that was, that was a problem. So, um, so what, what did happen was that, you know, uh, I got some very weird calls for, for things to shoot that I didn't really expect um, and I did exactly the same like thing. Like what? Uh, well, somebody <laughs> called me up and, and asked me to shoot to shoot his garden, and I kind of oh, thought, "Oh, okay." Yeah. Well, so you know, and but the whole <laughs> thing was was rather strange. And so I used the same strategy. I basically, you know, I said like, "Well," because I actually didn't want to do it initially. And uh, you know, I said like, "Well, do you know, um, I, uh, you know, have you seen my website?" And he goes, "Yeah." And so you see, you've seen what my rates are, and he goes, "Yes." And so, well, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm uh, going to have to charge you a half day rate, you know, uh, as a minimum. And he goes, "Like, oh yeah, it's fine." And I'm like, "Okay." And he literally lived like five minutes from me, and I'm like, "Okay, I guess I'm going to see you Friday. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to <laughs> yeah. shoot your shrub." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it turned out, it turned out to be, um, you know, it turned out to be an absolutely bona fide job and everything. But um, it just sounded odd. And initially, I didn't really feel like I wanted to do it, you know. And then I had, you know, my hungry child 
you know, opened the fridge, the empty fridge, and oh, I realized, you know, I had to put some food in there. So you're talking, you're talking about the dog, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let me say, you know, it's one of the one of the real advantages I think uh, of of the last you know twelve months or eighteen months or something was that I think had it not been for COVID, like I most likely would still be doing the same thing that I was doing eighteen months ago. And as a matter of fact, I'm not, and I weirdly think that photographically my career and the things that I do now, it has, it has actually accelerated the process in a weird way, mm. you know, because somehow there was time to experiment. There was time to, there was time to reflect. There was time to really think about, you know, how I wanted to do things and, you know, and so, um, yeah. and that was, that was actually extremely valuable. And that's if you actually make the most of that time, you know, yeah, and sure. yeah, we've talked to several, several guests in the last you know, few months who have, um, have and 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 there's a, there is a common theme, isn't there? That they've yeah. all tried to make the most of this time. Whether that's as simple as redeveloping their website, whether it's learning a new technique, whether it's whatever it might be. Netflix, uh, but no Netflix. That's right. the thing. Maybe at first we all we all did at first, but they've all tried to progress something while they can't actually do. See, I mean, the, the interesting thing was, of course, you know, through starting the podcast and having the opportunity to speak to lots of different people who, you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately we've, we've all kind of experienced sort of the same sort of thing. Um, it's been interesting to talk to people and see how, how people manage to, you know, get on with their lives throughout this whole pandemic thing. And, and, uh, and that's definitely been extremely useful. Yeah throughout yeah totally. You know. yeah i mean but i also i also completely get because i i to a large degree also you know treated it as a uh somewhat of a of a time off you know yeah, i mean sure. it, yeah. it it's a really difficult time for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways um but you know fingers crossed we never really have anything like this again yeah that yeah. would be you know ideal and so if you were the kind of person who just needed to not do anything mm. and just kind of appreciate the world for what it is, and if that was more valuable to you, then great. Like, I know there's a lot of people out there who were itching to create and they had that need to do stuff and make stuff. And then there's other people who just go, you know what? I'm good. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the world stopped. Let's just embrace that. Yeah, sure. For now and and you know and and try to hunker down and be safe and that's just having the, the time and the space to actually you know move certain things forward at you know at at, at your pace basically that was I, I felt that was the you know without a lot of without a lot of the other pressures around um that that was sure. definitely you know a huge benefit what i wanted to talk to you about is is um and you sort of alluded to that um initially is also how you know, how you started to develop your 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 personal style, because you said you came from the sort of mm -hmm. Miami scene of the bright and the happy, you know, kind of imagery, and you sort of arrived at the kind of dramatic and you know cinematic um, kind of portraiture. Almost like it's it's kind of like the polar opposite in a sense, isn't it? It's like slightly desaturated, you know, it's that Ooh. that kind of painterly look. And was that something? And and I know that a lot of your influences stem from the old the old masters, as it were. Yeah, sure. Was that yeah. always? Uh, was that something that's always interested you from the get-go or was that something that you sort of fell into and then it just opened the floodgates? No, I mean, 
I I was always into movies. Movies have always been a huge love of mine. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a movie director. Like I'm, I just, I love movies and watching movies and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that was, that was kind of a, always a big draw for me in the beginning. Uh, when I was making that more commercial work, it was usually about creating work for other people, not for me. And once I was able to create work um, outside of the confines of needing it to be up for other people and, and just for me, I generally was, I, I, I started to lean more into the other stuff because I never really got to shoot dark stuff in Miami, right? Like nobody, nobody really wanted that there. And so this was me just kind of exploring things that were new. And I really responded to it in a way that made me really happy. And so, which is ironic, uh, but, but it was, you know, that was kind of what led me to it. I, I kind of go, oh, this is cool. I like this. This is different. This is interesting. This speaks to me a little bit more authentically, you know, and uh, that was kind of how it turned into. Some people uh, kind of come to their, their creative medium completely fully formed. And they just know who they are right off the bat. Other people have to grow into it. Other people, some people never figure it out who they are. Uh, but we always develop and change. And we're, we're going to have we're going to have different um, periods and moods, um, styles for our work at different points in our life. It's always going to change. Some people set out to do it in a way that's completely conscious, and they say this is the kind of work that i want to create this is my checklist of style let's go out and make work that looks like this whereas other people fall into it a little bit more organically uh, you can sometimes get to where you're going a little bit faster if you relax man um <laughs> it's, it's raining a little bit so it's like knocking trees around um it, you know so so the 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 hope is that uh, you have a fully fleshed out style, um, vision, voice, whatever you want to call it, but it takes a lot of time for you to develop that for yourself, whether it's intentional or organic. And the, the biggest thing for it is even if you decide, hey, this is what I want my work to look like, the more you just kind of dive down that hole, the more it's going to change and the more you're going to kind of do your own thing with it. And that's why, you know, I don't think that I don't bemoan the people who, um, when you're learning, when you're learning, you explore the styles of other people because you'll eventually go, oh, I'm going to take a little bit of this. I'm going to take a little bit of that. I'm going to kind of plug it all in and do my own thing with it. I think that's totally fine when you are going through that process because you know we're nothing if not visual problem solvers and you get to see how other people have solved the xyz problem mm -hmm. and um, it helps you kind of get into the rhythm of of photography and 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 image making by kind of going through the motions and the steps that someone else has has walked and that's not to dissimilar in music. I mean, both both Nick and me have a you know have a, a background in, in music, and 
when you learn a musical instrument, it's actually, the process is exactly the same because mm. we're learned by imitating, you know, other players. Absolutely. And, and over time, you know, all like your choices eventually determine um, the unique player that you'll become sure. over time. But the process is a really long process, you know, and so. Totally. And, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite all-time musicians is Prince. And no right. one can kind of argue that Prince is uh, an original and and had his had his own style. But man, yeah. you go back and you look at Prince's earliest stuff. Prince wanted real bad to be Jimi Hendrix. You know, yeah. like he dressed like Jimi Hendrix. He played guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Prince is also one of the greatest guitar players ever. Like he's usually not given enough credit for he's how great he is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but because it's just he does a million other things or did a million other things extraordinarily well. But um, yeah, I mean, go, go look at his, his work and, you know, in his early years, he just, he wanted to be Jimi Hendrix real bad. And that was like, you know, he eventually became Prince, yeah, you know, it's like right. that process, whether you're, you know, a nobody or a, a, a huge person, like you, you all learn by, we, we all learn by. The funny thing, you know, funny thing about Jimi Hendrix was of course that, you know, Hendrix, when, when he was younger, he used to play in like R and B bands. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. So he used to, he used to play like all the, like R and B you know, Motown hits of the time, you know, and... Oh, I can, I can understand that. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. And to, you know, when you, you're knowing that you listen to some of his rhythm guitar playing and you go, yeah, that yeah. makes perfect sense. Totally. I don't know why yeah. I never thought about this before. Yeah. But yeah, you can hear the influences in there. When you yeah, start looking we at also, when, when he was younger, he was, when he was like, what, <laughs> a couple of years before Woodstock? Because he was 27 when he died? Was he, was he a yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, you know, he... Um, you see him and you, you don't ever think of him as being that young. Term. You know, like in the videos and the stills and stuff, but he was so young. Yeah, and it's, I mean, his his own like his personal style really came out when, uh, you know, when they put him together with, you know, Mitch Mitchell and like yeah. you know, and mm. you know, and a bunch of Brits, <laughs> essentially. But sometimes yeah, I mean, he definitely got that around you. that that old kind of the Brit version of the blues. You know, yeah. that, that's definitely kind of in there. It's a, sometimes you do need people that are certain very specific people around you to yeah, sure. bring out a very particular thing out, out of you. Right. And, you know, I could be surrounded by you two and what needs to come out of me just doesn't happen. I could be surrounded by two other people for whatever reason, it just draws the right thing out of me. You can't necessarily know what they, don't worry. You would. I think, I think you Chris, would, Chris, you would do that. Yeah, totally. 100%. But it's, it's, you know, it's that third album complex as oh, well, yeah. you know, particularly when bands are signed right near the, the start of their, you know, uh, sort of formation, if you mm. like, they they start developing. It just turns yeah. out that what, what people really liked is what they started yeah. as. And as they develop, they don't I mean, necessarily mm -hmm. appeal to, they appeal to different people. But I guess the thing is like in photography, for instance, you know, when, and I see this all the time, like, in fact, you know, my, my stepdaughter is a really good example because she's, she's um, studying photography at high school. So she's, you know, she's going to be a photography major, but um, she's really experimenting with a whole ton of different things. Mm. And it's literally because she's in, in that sort of learning phase, you know, she's learning about lighting, doing one thing, and she's learning about something else, doing another thing. And, I don't think she she has the the foggiest idea as to you know what she wants to pursue, but that's great at that age. Perfect. I mean, just take try, it all in and try different things. Try yeah, I I had I have this theory that I believe that there is this 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 trajectory that most artists have, right? 
And there is like this intersection of popularity in, or, you know, popular their pop in pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. That there's like this, they think of like they're taking off from like a planet and they're going into space. Like there's, there's a, there's an area at which most people are like, Oh man, I love this. What you're doing is great. And then they, they usually keep getting weirder. Like the more they explore their thing, like sometimes people don't like it as much because they liked it when it was closer to this. Yeah. Yeah. Less experimental weird thing. Um, and we as artists oftentimes want to keep creating and pushing and doing new things, but it's not always what the masses like for whatever reason. Um, we kind of just have to do it to, 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 to satiate ourselves. But I, I mean, I have, I have images who are like, Oh, this style. I'm like, yeah, but I'm better than that now. Like, this isn't what I'm, I'm into, but like, Oh no, but I want to do like this old stuff that you were doing. I'm like, eh, not really exciting to me anymore. You know, I think, I think we, we all regularly have a trajectory that kind of looks like that. And it's this weird inner battle of balancing this thing that, that, you know, people may want us to do and what we want to do. And that's a whole, that's a whole thing. You're right though. Like there's with, with hugely influential people, they usually have like a credit where they can kind of do whatever they want for the rest of their lives. And because they had that early success, they'll always have the credit. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I love like a lot of like, let's say Bruce Springsteen's newer catalog, I think is great. Or, or Paul McCartney's new stuff is great. Uh, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan's new stuff is still like, he's still got it going on. I mean, yeah, like we look back at his stuff 50 years ago and that was the amazing, you know, whatever, but like, he's still got it. It's just, it's, it's tends to be a little bit weirder, uh, a little bit more experimental. It's kind of them taking the path a little bit further away to see how far they can push that thing they're doing. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think the deep dives and some of the later work of some of these artists is, you know, the ones that are still trying to rent, uh, rent, uh, innovate and not rest on their laurels is totally worth an exploration and a watch. Oh, yeah. Same is true for, for artists. Like, I mean, you look at like let's say an Irving Penn. Irving Penn is not necessarily known for his still lives. I mean, in some degree, yes, but like yeah. you know, like his extra close-up pictures of of cigarette butts that he found on the on the street, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the average person doesn't celebrate him for that. But man, it's interesting and it's good and it's yeah. it's worth that deep dive into the back catalog because there's some real good work in there. Yeah, I tell you what's what's cool about this. Sometimes is that I mean, this is both true for photography as it is for music. You know, sometimes you find like you're into an artist um, because you discover them at a certain time, and then when you when you start looking at some of the history, maybe at first you go because it's so different. You kind of go, "Well, I'm not sure about that. That's not why I initially invested into that artist." Sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, but as you discover more, as you go down that track, um, you sort of you know, it really starts to grow on you. And before you know it, you might actually like the older stuff much more than, than the current stuff. You know, a lot of, a lot of bands sure. are like that. And sure. Andy Leibovitz for me was, was one of those cases where, you know, I, I loved her stuff and it's more like the kind of, you know, the stuff that she's done over the last maybe 15 years or something, like the Vogue stuff and whatever. And then I got, uh, I got at work, you know, her, the book. And I looked through it and at first I was like, oh, not, I don't know. That's not what I expected at all. And then the more I got into it, I really got into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it just kind of really drew me in. 
and it's just added uh, added another it's dimension. Exactly to it. the same as mm. you know finding whatever band it is that you're into, and then understanding mm. well who do they listen to. Well, yeah, that's a big one because uh, sure. that's all it's all pushed into it. And it's exactly the same yeah. photography as well. Mm. Yeah, if you can understand yeah. where they've come from and you can kind of follow their journey. It kind of helps you understand your journey and why you're into Andy Bits, for example, and where they're going. Well, what can I now do? Where's, yeah. where's that pushing me? So you're also um, a lecturer for uh, at the New York Film Academy and the Pratt Institute. Is that something that's, um, has that been sort of slightly, uh, how's that working at the moment? Are you back to face-to-face lectures or? Uh, so we've, we've been doing face-to-face in a couple of the programs. Uh, by and large, we are still mostly doing online. Um, any class that can be taught online typically is so like a history of photography is a um, Photoshop class typically online. But when it comes to doing um, uh, doing um, like in-person photo 101 stuff, lighting and stuff like that, I, I do that. I do that in person where we've been back since March. So do you have any uh, any more plans of any more um, courses? I, I am actually, I'm doing something for Fuji, um, which we are filming in the next few weeks, uh, which is going to be a several part video series, um, basically on kind of makeshift DIY lighting modifiers and stuff and kind of making your own and right. the different ways you can kind of implement that in studio and on location. Um, so it'd be a cool thing for kind of exploring light shaping and being a little bit more experimental with uh, what that can bring to the table for you. That's my next big project. Thank you so much, Chris, for being our special guest on episode 63 of the Camera Shake podcast. It was a total education. Um, I, I hope you're not totally you're melting me. away over there. No, I'm, I'm surviving. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. And of course, if you have been listening to the audio version of this podcast, you make sure to check out um, the full Technicolor version on YouTube. Likewise, if you are on YouTube and you need some entertainment for the car, you know, be aware that we are also uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, whatever. So with that in mind, that's us for this week. We'll be back next Thursday. As always, stay safe. See you then.